My name is Wes. I'm our pastor here. I want to welcome you here. If you're new, thanks for joining us. Those of you online, thanks for being a part of our gathering here today. Uh, we are in a series of messages called Seven Words to Change Your Life, and we're talking about seven words that have the power to change our lives. So, you know, pretty, can't say that's false advertising. So, um, today we're going to talk about the word sorry. And uh, as you are probably really familiar with, sorry is a really powerful word in our lives and the lives of people. Uh, all over. You know, we've seen our lives shaped in positive ways by the word sorry. We've seen our lives shaped by negative ways when people withhold uh, the word sorry from us on occasion. Um, I have two friends, uh, two friends uh, named Amy and Emily, and uh, they're very good friends of mine. They're even better friends with one another. And uh, about, gosh, eight, nine years ago now, um, they, uh, a uh, Amy and her husband, who's a pastor, decided they were going to start a church in the Atlanta metro area. And uh, so they moved uh, to go do that. They were going to go move to do that. And to kind of show you how deep that friendship was, uh, Emily and her husband actually decided that they were going to move a thousand miles away to do that with them. So, I mean, I kind of feel like, hey, if you're like in to move a thousand miles away to be, you know, help out a friend with something like that, I was like, man, you, you are close because uh, that, that's a lot. And uh, anyone who's got experience in church planning will tell you uh, those guys are like the Navy SEALs of, uh, of ministry right there. It's very tough. Um, so anyway, they moved to the uh, Atlanta area. Uh, you know, again, planting a church is hard. There's a lot of stuff. You don't have any infrastructure. You don't have any money. You don't have any people. You basically have no uh, appreciable assets that are important when you're trying to do church. And uh, so you had to start from nothing in an area that's like totally distanced from, you know, where, where you're from, where you grew up, all that kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, they start off, everyone's kind of hopeful, and then things get hard. You know, things get tough. And um, all of a sudden, you know, Emily kind of discovered like literally... Uh, she got married, uh, they went on their honeymoon the next week, and then the very next week, she and her husband moved a thousand miles away to Atlanta. So try that for your, you know, first two weeks of marriage right there. And, uh, and they moved down there, and Emily, it was her first time being away from everyone, you know, away from her home. Her whole family was where she moved from, and that was just really hard for her. And she experienced a lot of depression, she experienced anxiety, it was just tough, you know. And I, like, my wife and I, we can relate, we kind of have a similar story here. And uh, it's just hard. It is difficult. And then a couple months into doing this, uh, Emily found out unexpectedly they were pregnant. And so now that kind of like amped up, like, whoa, now we were, yeah, all the ladies in there were like, whoa, yeah, I can, I can feel that. And so she and her husband eventually made the really difficult decision that they were going to have to like, you know, leave. They were going to have to move back home. They were going to have to go back, you know, like it was just going to be too much for them to handle at this point in their marriage and their relationship. And so they made the decision to leave. Now, Amy and her husband, this is really hard on them, you know, because they were you know, like, they were people they were counting on, right? They were like the, the close friends, the bedrock of who they had back home, uh, and they were going to leave. They, they, they kind of felt like they were just hanging high and dry out here all on their own. Uh, sadly, the church eventually closed its doors a few years later, and that was really hard on Amy and her husband, of course. Um, Emily moved back home with her husband, and that ended up being a good transition for them, you know, and that kind of thing. But as you can understand, that relationship became strained, right? Because on one end, we have a person who kind of feels like, man, in the, in the toughest season of life, you left me on my own. And a person on the other side who kind of feels like, hey, how can you not understand how difficult that season was for me, right? I was going through a lot, like I didn't do this, you know, 
with excitement, you know, like I wasn't happy to do this. It was just kind of life was happening really fast, and I didn't really know what to do. And, of course, as normally happens in a lot of these situations, no one, like, would say that out loud to each other, so it just kind of was simmering under the surface, which if I, I'm terrible at relationships, but if I can just give you one piece of advice, things never just simmer under the surface, so just, you know, the elephant in the room is always in the room, so you might as well talk about it. Um, but anyway... They kind of went through this, and they were just like, the relationship was just strained for a while. It was just hard for a while. And then eventually, at some point, they reconnected, and they got their issues out into the open, and they said this powerful, powerful word of, I'm sorry. And it changed things for them. And the relationship is certainly different today. It's different because they're different, and their lives are different, and they're in different places now. But, but they are good. In fact, they're probably just as good as ever, I would imagine. And it's because this powerful word, sorry. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've all experienced what happens when people don't say they're sorry. You know, we've all had the conversation where it's like, hey, you hurt me. I've confronted you with the ways that you've hurt me. And yet you, you like, won't admit your fault in this situation. You won't say, hey, something, you know what? I need to own that. I need to say I'm sorry, right? And that, that is, like, one of the worst. It's one of the most angering. It's just one of the hardest feelings in the world. Some of us... Um, we've watched people leave our lives. We've watched people die, right? People who we wanted a sorry from, and now we just know, I'm not going to get that. And that's a hard thing to hold, right? That's a difficult thing to hold. Now, here's kind of the interesting thing about sorry, is a lot of times when I, I hate this about myself, but it's true, is a lot of times when I use the word sorry, I use it as a form of image management, you know? Like, I use sorry as a way to be like, oh, things feel kind of relationally unpleasant right now, so I'm just going to, like, throw a sorry out there so it's not as weird, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, every husband in the world, I think, ladies, just don't hold this against us, every husband in the, yeah, the husband's like, no, not me, Wes, because they already know what I'm going to say. Every husband in the world has said, I'm so sorry, honey, for something. They have no idea what they are sorry about, but they, they know they should be sorry, and they want to be sorry. They just don't want to fight about me. Anyway, so they've done that, right? And, and, but I use sorry oftentimes as a way to kind of smooth over some relational unpleasantness, you know, that kind of thing. And I, unfortunately, kind of can use that word to manipulate people into feeling like, oh, Wes is really sorry and contrite, when sometimes I'm actually not as sorry and contrite as I let on. That's probably a, not a great thing for me to say. But here's the thing about the word sorry, is sorry is a word God gives us to come out of hiding. We don't think of sorry that way very often. Um, a, several years ago, my previous job, um, I had a, like, there was this issue that I and another person on our church's staff were trying to solve together. And it involved both of us, and I was in charge of kind of one aspect of this problem, and she was in charge of the other aspect of this problem. And we're trying to work together, and it's one of those things where, like, we honestly, we just didn't see eye to eye on how to solve this problem, you know? And honestly, part of the reason we didn't see eye to eye is because probably the right solution was going to require work for me that I didn't really want to do, you know? And so I was like, no, that's a terrible idea, Bobby. We should not do that. And so we kind of had one of those conversations where it just got heated, you know? Like, it wasn't, no one said anything nasty, no one said anything mean, but I could just tell my tone with her was not what it needed to be. And so as I, like, it was at the end of the day, you know, I went home, and I just kind of had this feeling in my heart, like, man, things are not right here. I need to say I'm sorry, that kind of thing. 
And so like the first thing in the morning when I knew she had come in, I like made sure to go to her office. And even as I'm walking to her office to say I'm sorry about this kind of this kind of little unimportant thing, right? It wasn't again like there's some horrible gross violation that occurred or anything. It was just like, hey, I feel like my tone with you was not really nice yesterday. I just need to say I'm sorry. It wasn't anything significant. But there was still that thing in me, and that's that, that thing in all of us, right? That's like, well, I don't need to say I'm sorry. I don't need to apologize. I don't need to whatever. Yeah. Is this really necessary? You know, that kind of thing. You're looking for all the outs, all the exit rants to not have to do this, right? And I had somehow just like, I, I, it was like a war was happening in my spirit of, am I going to do this? Am I going to not? I forced myself into her office, got the words out, and the big reason why I hate saying the word sorry is because what happens when I say the word sorry and when we say the word sorry, or at least when we do it effectively, is we're opening our soul to another person. And we are doing something really scary, which is acknowledging, hey, things aren't all all right in here. And there's some embarrassing stuff. There might be some shameful stuff. There's some, ooh, kind of stuff in here. But I know if we're going to be good, and if I'm going to be good, I got to show it. I got to be honest about it. Sorry is a word God gives us to come out of the hiding that we all like to, all of us are PR managers for ourselves, right? We all want to make this perfectly manicured image of like, oh, look at the perfect family, and oh, look at this, and oh, look at that. And even, like, I've noticed this, even online when we share things about our lives that are kind of, like, not good, we still do it as a way to manage our image so we aren't, like, the perfect person, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, we have flaws too, and here they are, and aren't they cute and funny and whatever, you know, like we do that kind of thing, okay? And that's like, like, again, we're scared to kind of open up to the truth about who we are. Here's a truth that I think we need to really wrestle with this morning is that we can't have both healing and hiding. In our lives, we have to choose one or the other of those two words, right? I can experience the healing that comes with opening up the truth about myself, or I can have the convenience of hiding, but I cannot have both of those. I have to choose. And if I'm really honest about myself, a lot of times the hiding feels a lot better, a lot more convenient, and certainly a lot easier than the healing. And that's part of the problem. And that's why we need to talk about this word sorry today. Today, um, I want to look at a word, or a word, a story in the Bible that talks about the importance of us coming out of hiding. And I'll be the first to acknowledge this is not like this is a very strange story in the Bible. It's a little spooky, you know. I don't know if that you, I don't know if you can call a Bible story spooky, but I will. And uh, this story is kind of a strange one. Like we don't like to talk about a lot because again, it's just kind of like you know weird. But it does illustrate this idea of how much God values our coming out of hiding, our stepping into the healing. That, that coming out hiding, that this word sorry provides to us. And here it is, it's from a book called Acts. Uh, Acts is the history of the early church. It's recorded by a guy named Luke, who was a first century follower of Jesus. And Luke tells us this. Um, he's just told us at the end of chapter four, this is the beginning of chapter five, that like 
a bunch of people were basically giving a bunch of their money and resources to help needy people in the church and in the city around them, okay? And so kind of tacked onto that, Luke tells us, but there was a certain man named Ananias who, along with his wife Sapphira, sold some property, okay? So he sold, he sold some stuff, he had, you know, whatever. Now, if you owned property back in the day, you're a pretty wealthy person because not a lot of people owned property in the first century, right? That Like today, if you own a home, that's like a big step forward in kind of your wealth journey or whatever, right? Even more so in the first century. It was very rare you would own your own home, your own property. So Ananias and Sapphira, they're, they're kind of loaded, basically, okay? And so Luke goes on to tell us, they sold this land, and then he, bought, he brought part of the money to the apostles, to the leaders of the church, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Now, that phrase, he kept the rest, Luke wrote the book of Acts in ancient Greek. That phrase, he kept the rest, it's one Greek word that is used in other places in the ancient Greek language to talk about embezzling money, okay? So basically, Luke's saying, hey, this guy is taking something financially that doesn't belong to him. He, he's trying to, to kind of like play off this image of the kind of person that he is, but he actually isn't really that person. He's kind of he's trying to play everyone right here. Ananias and Sapphira are living in hiding. They're trying to put forward a false front about who they are, okay? And so that, that's like, not good, right? And God is not very pleased with that. When deception enters the community, when deception enters our relationships, God leaves the building, okay? <laughs> Where deception is, God often is not. Or if he is there, he's there to convict us of our sin, right? To, you know, kind of help us in that way. So the story continues. Peter, who's like the, the leader of the church, he says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Which is like, whoa, come at me, bro. You know, like, man, that's pretty huge, right? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. And then he goes on, he says, this property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. After selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? Okay, so it, Peter's point is, Ananias, no one forced you to do this. And like, no one said you had to sell this property and give any of the money away. When you sold it and decided to give some of the money away, no one said you had to give all of it away. You could give half of it away. You could give a quarter of it away. You could give 75% of it away, 10% of it away, 1% of it away. You know, like, like, you don't have to do all of this, right? And when you said you were giving it all away and stuff changed, you know, your kid needed braces or, you know, someone had to, like, had an expensive doctor's appointment or, you know, whatever, right? Like, no one was forcing you to stay to that commitment. We'd all understand if you said, hey, things changed. I need some more resources. We need to save some more of this cash. Whatever. No one forced you to do this, Ananias. You just did this purely because you're, you're a liar, right? You're being a deceptive member of this community. You, you, are, you are manipulating us. You are living, Ananias, in hiding. You weren't lying to us, but to God. And Peter goes on, well, the story goes on. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. I'm like, oh man, that was a good day at church right there. What happened at Sunday school, honey? Well, someone died. It was pretty intense, mom, you know? Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Yeah, I'll bet they were, because no one on the church sign wants to put, come to us, we're the church that kills people. You know, like that's not, that's not a good mission statement on your marquee, right? And so 
the story finishes. Some young men got up, wrapped him in the sheet, took him out, buried him. Now, you can keep reading the next five or six verses. The same exact thing will happen to Mrs. Ananias, to Sapphira. Same deal, right? She walks in. She kind of presents herself one way and, uh, you know, doesn't end too good for her. And same way it did for her husband, okay? Now, we all read, the, at least I read this story, and I think, wow, God, that, that feels like a lot right there, buddy. Like, that feels kind of like an overreaction. That feels like, you know... <laughs> Ooh, that feels really harsh, you know. The moral of the story here is don't lie to the pastor ever for any, no, just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, I mean, please don't lie to me, but I, pro I don't have the power to take your life or anything, I promise. Yeah, yeah, and so Ananias does this, and he, he and his wife, right, they are, they are, again, deceiving the community. The church at this point is only like months maybe even just weeks old at this point, okay? This is the infancy stages of this community. Now, I got to tell you, like, this is not a good church growth strategy, right? Like, when Easter's coming around, you know, our, our church's plan to get people here for Easter is not, well, man, just some people would just keel over and die in the middle of worship. That'd be great, you know? That'd be really helpful, you know? Like, no one wants to advertise, come to our church, you might die, you know? Like, that's not good, Okay. But what this story should reveal to us is how important God saw to it from the foundation of his community in this world that our community, that, that the community of Jesus would be one that is marked by honesty, by openness, by transparency, by saying, I'm sorry when I get it wrong. That that's the kind of thing God desires for his people. Because God knows something and believes something that I might know or give assent to, but I often don't kind of live out. And it's that when people get real, people get healed. Think of when you like experience healing work in your life. It happened because you got real about the problem. When you go to the doctor's office, a good doctor is not going to sugarcoat the truth of your condition. When you get back your, you know, like A1C numbers and they show that you have diabetes, right? Your doctor isn't doing you any favors by saying, oh, no, you, I mean, sugar's a little high, but, you know, whatever, who cares? Right? No, that's not helpful to you. That's not going to be helpful to your life, right? Might not be news you want to hear, right? But if you want to experience healing and wholeness, if you want to get help, it's going to happen because you get real about what's going on in your body, right? When we have personal problems or addictions or whatever that we get over, when a relationship is rocky, right? It never gets better when we hide the issues, right? It gets better when, in fact, we have the courage to get real, and especially when we have the courage to get real about the stuff that we've contributed to make things wrong so that we can undergo the work together to try and make them right. When people get real, people get healed. The Bible talks about this. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, wrote kind of an open letter to the first century church, which I say this once in a while. I feel like we should stop again and just say this again. One of the best evidences that I think the Bible actually tells us the truth about Jesus is that Jesus' brother believed he was the son of God. Like, what would your brother have to do to convince you he was the son of God? I have a sister. I feel very confident. I'm never going to think that she is the son of God or daughter. You know, like, I, I'm never going to have that problem, right? So James doing that tells us 
wow, he must, he must have seen something, right? Anyway, that's my little aside. But James says this, writing to Christians, writing to people just like you and me. He says in James 5, 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, there's our word, so that you can be healed. The healing is directly connected to the confession to each other and the praying for each other. In other words, the healing is directly connected to me stepping out of hiding. That's where the healing happens. And then James says, once you step out of hiding, and once people are invited into your life to pray for you, to minister to you, to kind of help you, we'll discover the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It brings about help. It brings about hope. It brings about healing. It, it is a game changer for you. It, it can be a game changer for me, right? But it happens because I decide I'm going to get real because that's where the healing comes. But that's the challenge for us, isn't it? I'm sure I'm probably not the only one in this room that's been a part of a community, especially a Christian community, that kind of lives in hiding. How you doing today? Oh, great. I'm great, brother. Thank you, you know. Sister, sister, I'm so, I'm so blessed, you know, whatever, right? And that's good. Like, hey, that's wonderful, right? I can just speak for, you know, I've been around the church a real long time. You know, I'm so Christian. I went to Christian school, and then I went to Bible college. So I'm probably shiny. I'm probably look shiny to you right now. It's not just because my skin is oily. It's because, you know, I'm just super holy, you know, from going to all that Christian schooling. And now I have to beat it out of me. Anyway, uh, the problem is, right, we hide in the shadows of life. We, we kind of, you know, we, we like to pretend things are good when they're not. Some of us, like, I have this problem just kind of naturally. I'm one of the personality types. I, want, I don't want to burden anyone. I want, like, anytime you talk to me, I want to be helpful. I don't want to be like the guy with all the problems all the time, you know. Maybe I just listened to, like, too much country music when I was a kid or something like that, you know. But, like, I don't want to be a burden to you, right? And so I got, I got to make everything look good. I got to make it all nice and clean and squeaky on the outside, okay? And that problem is that's not, that's not community, because we can only be loved to the extent that we are known. And one of the ch most challenging things I have learned in my marriage to Brittany is I have to be open about my junk with her, even when I don't feel like it affects her. Because when, I, when I'm not, <laughs> what happens is we get cut off from each other. We get disconnected from one another. Our relationship suffers. Because when someone around us only knows 10 or 20% of us, what goes on in our minds the whole time is, well, if you knew the whole story, you wouldn't like me so much anymore. You wouldn't accept me so much anymore. You wouldn't love me so much anymore. The healing, the connection, and the relationship happens when we invite people onto the inside into the parts and places of our lives that we're not so proud about because that's where the healing and the health and the wholeness and the connection happen. As I've mentioned in this series, we, uh, we borrowed this series, uh, i.e. stole uh, with permission, from a church in California. And a guy named John Ortberg is actually the guy who preached this message. And after you're done listening to this, you should Google seven words to change your life, sorry, and look for his message and listen to it because it's about 20 times better than the one I'm going to preach to you here today. But as we finish up, he had some, well, I just thought were brilliant ideas on how we can become a real community. And so kind of in my own words, I want to paraphrase those and offer those to you. 
It's kind of solutions for just your day-to-day relationships as solutions maybe for, uh, like, certainly for our church and the community that we're trying to form here of how we can grow and be that kind of community that's not just like people in proximity to each other, but is truly actually connected with one another. Uh, here's suggestion number one. He says, um, if we want to become a real community, we need to do a fearless, searching, moral inventory, Okay. A moral inventory is basically I take stock in my life and I get really honest about this is what's broken in me, this is the stuff I do wrong, this is where I'm falling short, you know, it sounds real delightful, right? All of us are like, man, I can't wait to do that, you know, right? Which is why that word fearless becomes really important because it requires a lot of courage to get honest about ourselves, doesn't it? David in Psalm 139 prayed this. He said, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? Maybe that's a, maybe you should literally just write that down and kind of just say that aloud as a prayer to God on, you know, for yourself, you know, just say, hey God, help me to see, help me to know the truth about myself. That's what a moral inventory is. It's me discovering the truth about myself and AA and 12 step programs. I think this is step four is you have to do this. You have to take a moral inventory of your life. Um, this can be something as simple as I sit down with a pen and paper and I just kind of take 30 minutes and maybe I pray this prayer to open up and I just kind of get real honest about, man, here's the stuff I feel like I'm hiding. Here's the stuff that I feel like, oh, yeah, gosh, glad no one knows about that, you know, or whatever it is, right? And I, I write that stuff down. I've heard people talk about doing like a daily review where it's basically once I finish the last thing I do that day, whether it's putting the kids in bed or I cleaned up the kitchen or whatever it is you do to finish up, maybe it's your head hits the pillow at night, right? But I just do like a quick review of my day and I think about, man, where, where did I feel close to God? Where did I feel far from God? Where do I feel like I got something I need to confess to God? Where do I feel like I fell short today? Where, where did something make an impression on me that I just feel like I got to kind of get out into the open? I got to talk about, right? That's what a moral inventory is. That's what a fearless moral inventory does. It's the first step to leading us into healing. A statement that we use around here every once in a while, a guy named Craig Rochelle, he's a pastor, but he says this great thing where he says, you cannot correct what you will not confront. A moral inventory is our decision to confront the things that we know God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, desires to correct. But God is often not going to force his way into your life. He's waiting on us to invite him, which leads us to the second thing. If we want to become a real community, it means we will confess sin to God, to myself, and to another person. Now, there's something valuable when I confess sin to God, right? It's not, God is not up in heaven going like, oh, you did what? Oh, you thought what? Like, God is not surprised, you know, which actually is kind of helpful. One of the things I feel like I've learned about God in the past year or two is I'm a lot more surprised that I'm a sinner than God is which is actually kind of nice because anytime I confess a sin to God, I am always more surprised about it than God is, right? He is not, it's like parents, you know, when your kids, like they did some stupid thing and like, you know that they did it and you're just waiting on them. You give them like the the six hour probation period. Yeah, moms are like looking at their kids now. Uh, You give them like the six hour probation period because you know they did it, right? And you're just waiting to see if they're going to come forward or not. And when they come forward, you're not like, Oh, be still my beating heart. You, you did what? You know, what, huh? You know, like all that kind of thing. When I was a kid, I had this, I was going to be t- the next Tiger Woods. And so 
Um, I would routinely swing my, practice my Tiger Woods golf swing in my bedroom, which was not large enough for my Tiger Woods golf swing. And I broke the glass in the uh, like uh, ceiling fan in my room and I hid the glass somewhere. And my parents literally knew it for like a week and they like waited and being the man of God I am, I never fessed up to it. Uh, I, even to this day, I'm like, yeah, gosh, mom, I don't know how that glass got broken. It's real, real strange, you know, I don't know. Where, how'd, this, uh, how'd this glass get here? Good, good job. Good job by me making the mic pop. You're welcome. Anyway, so when we confess, there's something powerful that happens, right? God, God is not surprised. In fact, it's a way we can kind of invite God in. And oftentimes for us, it's a good way for us to kind of own our brokenness a little bit, right? That, which is a healthy and good thing. But the part that's scary to us and that we need help with is often not the I need to confess to God and to myself part. The scary part is the confess to another person part, right? That's the part I fall short on. But again, let's just turn back to James 5.16. Let's just reiterate, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Again, it is the confess your sins, not just to God, not just to myself, to another person where the healing and the transformation happen. One of the reasons that communities like AA and 12-step often out-community the church, out-connect the church, is because if you've ever had the privilege of going to, of sitting in a 12-step meeting, no one is putting on airs in the 12-step meeting. Literally, the first thing you say when you address the crowd is, hi, my name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic, right? So from the beginning, we're establishing, I'm not sugarcoating anything right here. And if you sit in and you listen to the stories, right, you hear people say some stuff that you're like, oh, man, that was a pretty low point, right? But it's actually in the fact that they share that kind of gut honest, ugly truth about their lives that brings about community, right? Because they know that they're seen and they're cared for, and they're supported, and they're loved anyway. Um, recovery communities often have to worry about this thing called rehab romance, and basically it's the concept that when people get into rehab, they usually develop some romantic attachment to someone because for the first time in their lives, they've had someone that they could like feel that they could be honest with and like truly open to, and they're experiencing connection, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, there's this magical thing that's happening. No, what they're actually experiencing is just, yep, that's what happens when we're open and honest about our junk with other people. Amen. We experience connection. That's why the confession to another person is important. Now, we resist that because, again, it kind of puts me down the peg. And we also resist it, too, because isn't it true that there's something scary about when I, when I open up my heart to you and when I confess something to you, all of a sudden, now I'm accountable in a way that I wasn't before. Because when I'm the only one that knows about my junk, I can kind of decide what progress looks like. But when I give someone else kind of the key to own some of that with me, now, now there's an outside source. And in the same way that hiring a physical trainer is scary because my physical trainer doesn't care about the pain in my body the way that I care about the pain in my body. That's kind of their job, right? Is to go, oh, sorry, you feel bad, do another set. You know, like that's kind of what they do, right? In the same way that that's true of them, when we confess well to others, the same becomes true of us. That now we've invited some accountability in our lives. And that's scary. It's okay to note that. It's okay to recognize that. That's also part of why confessing to another person is what invites healing 
help. Which leads to the third thing. Third step here is if we want to become a real community, we need to make restitution for what we have done wrong when possible. Uh, in the Old Testament, when God speaks to the Jewish people and he kind of lays out what to do when someone has stolen something from another person, he says, hey, when you take something from someone, you need to give it back plus 20%. So like the idea is, hey, I'm going to like make things right and then some. You know, like, I, like I'm actually going to make it better than it was when I took it from you. Um, in the New Testament, there's this guy named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is like a terrible person. He's a tax collector. He's corrupt. He invites Jesus over for dinner. Zacchaeus decides he wants to become a follower of Jesus. And Zacchaeus stands up and he says, look, Jesus, here and now, I'm going to give half of all my stuff to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'm going to give them back four times the amount. So not just 20%. 400%, right? And when Zacchaeus said, if you've cheated, if I've cheated anyone out everything, everyone at the dinner party chokes on their Chardonnay because they're like, Zacchaeus, you're a tax collector. Like, literally, you make a living off of cheating people. Like, that, that's what you do for a living, buddy. Like, you got a lot of restitution to make. And Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't go, hey, Zacchaeus, let's not get carried away with it. Or like, Zacchaeus, seriously, 20%. That's all you need to do. Jesus says nothing which is kind of like an implicit statement, like, yeah, buddy, like, yeah, you probably should go above and beyond to try and make things right with the people you've taken from. Uh, that, that's what forgiveness looks like. Now, of course, we can't always do this, right? There are certain situations, like, hey, if I feel like I'm a bad dad, right, I can't go to a, uh, my kid and go, well, hey, here's the five years back that I was a bad dad, right? You no, know, all I can do is promise to do better in the future and demonstrate a changed attitude in the future, right? There might be situations where things are so bad that someone puts up a boundary, and they say, actually, I'm kind of cutting off all ties with you because it's just toxic, it's bad for me. And hey, as a Christian, we need to respect closed doors. We never force open the door. We allow the Holy Spirit to open the door for us, and we want to respect other people as God respects us. But when and where possible, when it's not going to cause undue injury to another person, we should do what we can to make things right, to do right by our neighbors. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Part of my problem with saying I'm sorry is I want to be a uh, I want to be a conventionally decent person. I want to be a person who doesn't seem to have a whole lot of problems. I want to be a person who doesn't seem like I have a whole lot of issues. Which doesn't mean I don't have problems and issues. What it means is I just kind of keep them hidden on the inside. Because my issues wear names like greed and lust and pride and anger, and any other number of things, right? And I think that these aren't really that big a deal, except for the fact that when I read the story of Scripture, conventionally decent people are the people who nailed the Son of God to a cross. And come on, isn't it true that all the stuff we see in our world today, isn't it true that the stuff that makes us shake our heads and go, huh, Right? It's the same anger in them that lives in me, just to a different degree. Right? It's, it's, the same, it's the same lust for power. It's the same lust after people in them, just to a different degree. Jesus tells this story that is always super convicting to me. In Luke chapter 18, he says, um, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, so in other words, the conventionally decent people, 
the people who, who, who stayed in hiding, who didn't seem like they had many problems. Jesus told this story. So to people like me, Jesus tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like the robbers, the evil do the evidently doers, the evildoers, I should say, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get, which for conventionally decent people, isn't this true? We kind of pick something that makes us look like a good person. And we kind of focus in on that as like the evidence that I am who I present myself to be, right? Oh, I give money. Oh, I go to church. Oh, I helped an old lady across the street. Oh, I did the, you know, right? Like, oh, I'm a part of the civic, I'm part of my HOA, you know, whatever it is, right? And we find stuff that we can kind of use to kind of prop ourselves up to feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not messed up. I'm not like these other people, right? We'd never say that, but at least for me, I know that's the attitude in my heart. But the tax collector, Jesus said, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is, other than the Lord's Prayer, that, that statement, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is one of the oldest prayers in Christian history. People have been saying that for thousands of years. But, uh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Next slide. I tell you, this man, Jesus says, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus says is, hey, the pathway into relationship with me is not having it all together. The pathway into relationship with me is admitting I don't have it all together, and I'm humbling myself and admitting that my life is kind of falling apart. <laughs> I'm kind of a mess. And I need God's help to heal me. There's a guy named William Vanderblumen. He uh, leads this like uh, firm that like searches for pastors and people for ministries and that kind of thing. And uh, like it's basically his job. It's like a headhunter for churches essentially. And he tells a story about how uh, one time he was interviewing some 25 or 26 year old kid to be like a, a youth minister or something like that. And one of the questions they ask in the process is like, hey. Uh, do you have any moral failures or any, you know, kind of big mistakes that I should know about, you know, that churches should know about? And this young man, only 25 or 26, looks him straight in the eye and says, William, I am a moral failure. <laughs> and William said, yeah, this kid understood something theologically that I often miss. Right? That, that in the eyes of God, God is not looking down going, man, look how much Wes has it together. God in love is saying, man, I see he's struggling, and I want him to turn to me. The message of Jesus is not for people like me who often feel like we have to have it together. The message of Jesus is for those of us who will get honest and admit that we are falling apart, that we need Jesus' help. And today can be the day we turn. Today can be the day we receive that pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that your message of grace is not for those who have it together. It is for those who are willing to acknowledge that they are falling apart. Lord, may we not be too proud, but instead, Lord, may we be humble to acknowledge our need, our brokenness, our sin before you and Lord before others. And in the process, God, I pray we would receive your healing. 
Holy Spirit, work in us right now. Transform our relationships. Transform this community, Lord. To be a place where we walk in brutal honesty about ourselves. And we experience the depth and riches of your love as a result. We ask and pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.